0: Our uh, sermon tonight comes from 1 Corinthians 14, uh, mostly focusing on verses 26 through 40. But I figured I would read the entirety of the chapter. Now we often look at this chapter and we consider uh, the spiritual gifts that were there in the church for a time, but that's not our focus today. Our focus is that the apostle says, no matter what you did in worship, no matter what age All things are to be done decently and in order. And that rule abides forever. For it flows from the very character and nature of God, as you will see in this text. All right. Well, with that, 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 1. This is the very word of God, and it is infallible. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy... For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church." I would that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret, that the church may receive edifying. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise, ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so ye, forasmuch as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, But my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say, Amen, at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, But the other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding. That by my voice I might teach others also. Than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children. But in understanding be men. In the law it is written... With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, And there come in those that are unlearned, or unbelievers. Will they not say that ye are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, or one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. How is it then, brethren? When you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three, and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let them first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What, came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge the things that are right unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant... Let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray for the preaching. Our Father and our God, we come to a text that again is a challenge to our flesh. For we don't like to know that you, O oh God, our ruler, Over worship. We, O God, would rather be those who say and proclaim, Let every man do what is right in his own eyes. And yet you are not the author of confusion, but of peace. So let us have peace today through the preaching of the word. Give your servant who preaches, may he be a messenger of peace and order, as order reflects the mind of God. We know that this man who preaches his mind is often jumbled and confused. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would give to us the order and peace that we seek from out of your Holy Word. Lord, we pray that the hearers as well, that they would have every voice removed from them but the voice of God through the Holy Scriptures. And so we plead for Christ's presence and we plead for Christ's ministry through the preaching of the Word. So help me now preach, Lord, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. For we ask this for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin, because it's been several weeks, by reviewing where we've been in this series on worship, the three prior sermons. First, we began our series by considering the holiness of public worship. To know God says, I will be sanctified in them that draw nigh me. Leviticus 10 verse 3. And we saw that worship is holy because it is a God we worship who is holy. And in worship we draw near to a holy God. And that, not the regulative principle, is the foundation for worship. Second, we heard of our need For public worship, it is not optional, but it is required of us that corporate worship is the highest way we can glorify God on this earth to praise Him and adore Him, to hear His marvelous oracles and to share in the communion feast and to be encouraged and edified, but at the same time bowing our necks to Him as we worship. And in New Testament worship, as we heard in Psalm 91, the most amazing thing is that the worshipers of God in Jesus Christ enter the most holy place. And that's what you've just done, friends. Now, you may not realize it, but this is what the Word of God says that when you enter into worship by the blood of Jesus Christ, you enter into the most holy place. Hebrews 10 verse 19. And we believe that that is what is happening now because the word of God says it's true and we believe it by faith. And third, we heard the rule for divine worship, what is called the regulative principle of worship. Deuteronomy 12:32, "What things soever I command you, observe to do it; thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it." In other words, in worship To sum up the principle, what God has not commanded is forbidden to us. And what God has commanded, we must observe, neither adding to the worship of God nor taking away from it. And just as in the two prior messages, we saw that is based on the nature of God God is our king. He dictates what he wants in worship, not what we, his subjects, want. But when a worshiper blessedly has the heart of her king, they will give to the king what he wants. And the desires of King Jesus become the desires of the bride of Christ. And we say with Jesus, not my will, but thy will be done. And that's the heart of the regulative principle for the worshiper. So having laid that foundation tonight, what we're going to do is investigate how to order a worship service. Because some are confused by the regulative principle. They say, Pastor, if you only do what is commanded, why are you speaking in a microphone? Where is that in the Bible? Why are you using a pulpit? Why did you pass the bread on a platter When we observed the Lord's Supper last Lord's Day, why do you even have a bulletin, an order of worship that everybody follows? None of that seems to be commanded by the Scripture, so why are we doing it? And those are, actually, you need to understand, when people ask questions like that, treat them as sincere questions. And really, the only reason to be upset is if you don't know the answer, right? Right? And so a part of this series on worship is to know how to answer these questions, and so that you yourself will not do anything on implicit faith, in faith in your pastor, in your elders, in your denomination, in your book of church order, whatever it is, that instead you would know from the very word of God why we do what we do by faith. So today I want to distinguish between elements of worship and circumstances, of worship, Those are technical terms, and we'll define them a bit. The elements, sometimes like Bannerman, James Bannerman calls them the parts of worship, they are the things that have religious significance. They're the things that actually have religious significance. The circumstances of worship enable us to offer those elements with order. As the apostolic rule, let all things be done decently and in order, as we see in verse 40. And just, and I want you to see how tightly connected worship is to the nature of God, because Paul in this text ties verse 40 into the very nature of God and the character of God in verse 33. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Everything that we do in worship reflects the very nature and character of God. So we're going to divide our time into the three headings on your outline. This sermon is, I will say, much more didactic than a lot of sermons that are preached here, but I think it's necessary so we will worship well. So the first uh, heading is the need for order in worship. Second, the need for defined elements of worship. And third, the need for understanding circumstances of worship. Well, the need for order. From our text, and this is one of the primary places we go to see this, it is clear that there was great chaos in the church at Corinth when it comes to the worship of God. John MacArthur wrote a well-titled book called Charismatic Chaos, and it certainly seems to be reflected in this chapter as it seems to reflect the charismatic church's chaotic nature of worship. But that chaos, as we see in Corinth, did not begin with modern charismatics. Our text testifies to it. And what was going on in the worship of God in Corinth was utter confusion. People spoke when they wanted to. Women would speak in the worship service. No one could understand what was going on, what they were hearing. It was chaos and it was confusion. Their services did not reflect the truth. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. You see... What God intends in the worship of God is what you see here as the ideal in verse 25, that the secrets of the worshiper's heart would be manifest, would be declared, so that they would fall down on their face and worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. That's what God desires in the worship service. And the very presence of God, friends, is obscured in an assembly that is marked with disorder. Because God's presence is in a place that is marked with order, because he is not the author of confusion. In other words, if there is confusion in the worship service, God is not the author of that service. And you cannot expect the presence of God there. And so, for ourselves... We do not expect the presence of God when there is disorder in this place. Instead, Paul wrote that when the unlearned or unbelievers came to the church at Corinth, they would say that ye are mad, out of your mind. And I don't think there's a very large leap there to see what is going on in a lot of Pentecostal kind of worship services. Ye are mad. You are out of your mind, verse 23. And So what a terrible witness disorder in worship is to God friends when pagans laugh and mock us when our services are not full of order because worse than them mocking us they mock God and they can't see God in a disorderly service because God is not the author of confusion a disorderly church can only expect this word from God which is Ichabod the glory has departed The need for order is vital. Our text shows it is a gospel issue, friends. Order is needed for the glory of God. It is needed to convert souls and needed for the edification of the body. Without it, we would descend into chaos, the chaos at Corinth and in too many churches today. Now, I do want us to remember, I've already alluded to it, that our text speaks of parts of worship that are no longer functional in the church. You remember that this is during a time when the New Testament was not finalized, right, friends? When we still had the extraordinary office of apostle. We had prophets in the church. We see a gift, a gift of tongues in our text that were once part of the worship of God. And we don't deny that because the Bible makes it clear. But boys and girls, what is meant by a tongue in the Bible is meant to a language. You know, it can sound more, it can sound more, um, Uh, more exotic than it is but it's a language that is spoken friends the gift of speaking foreign languages the gift of tongues was given to preach Christ to the lost who did not know the languages of the first disciples look at verse 22 wherefore tongues are for a sign not to them that believe but to them that believe not and you can think of Pentecost when they all heard the disciples speak in the languages that were native to all the visitors The reason the gift was given is when the church exploded on the world stage with the scripture not yet finalized, these temporary gifts were part of the worship services of God to show that God is with us. Even so, they were carefully regulated. Verses 27 and 28, Paul says, some must interpret. Today we do not expect tongues to operate ordinarily in the church. Certainly not. Why would they operate, especially not in in our part of the world, when we have a multitude of Bibles? I've got two Bibles just sitting here. You probably have a bunch at your own home. And we find Bibles in English and every other major language spoken in this nation. But my my concern is not tongues. I I wanted to leave that there so you can understand the framework of this text. Our concern is not the tongues or the extraordinary gifts of the apostolic church, but the abiding moral principle for our text which is active in every age do all things decently and in order and i've already said this so i'll repeat myself but the bible repeats itself many times because we need to hear it again how do you know that verse 40 is an everlasting moral principle and not done away with friends because again it comes from the nature of god God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. What marks, then, the churches of the saints, friends? Order in worship and peace. Those are defining marks of the church. It defines the character of God, and so it is a moral principle that abides forever. All parts of the worship of God, then, must be done decently and in order. And so with that fundamental principle established, let's turn to our second heading, the need to define the elements of worship. All right. So as I've already said, there needs to be something distinguished in the worship of God, what we call the elements of worship and the circumstances. Now, most of this series on worship, as we go ahead in months, and it is an occasional series in that we don't go into it week by week, But the bulk of this uh, sermon series is going to be on the elements of worship, the elements of worship or the parts of worship, those things that we do in worship that have religious significance, those things that we offer up to God in public worship, the things that God desires to receive when the body comes together to worship him. And it is elements that the regulative principle is most concerned with. And so if there is an element in the worship service, and you see them, they're very clearly listed here on your bulletin. Each line is an element of the worship service. Every element has to be has to be taken out of the Word of God. They have to have positive precept from the Word. If you cannot find it in the Word, it cannot be an element of your worship service. God is not pleased. We saw this in Deuteronomy 12.32. I don't need to rehash it. God is not pleased by it if it doesn't come from the word. God does not accept it and God does not want it. And it is our aim to be well pleasing to him and so we must be diligent to make sure no element comes into the worship of God that he would not want and that would be called strange fire. So, every line... In your order is what we believe, an element commanded by God, and it is put together in an orderly way. Boys and girls, that's where we get worship order. It is put together in an orderly way, so there's no confusion when we come together. You know what we're doing now? You're going to know what we're doing right after the sermon. What's going to happen after the sermon? There's going to be a prayer of application. No confusion. We're all on the same page, and we are all worshiping God in an orderly manner. The order, though, is not commanded by God, but that there is order is commanded by God. We're going to see that in the last heading. So the regular principle that we looked at last time is concerned with what we do, the singing, the prayer, the preaching, and whatever other elements in our service that are commanded by God. Let me give you a quick run-through. We're going to get into this more in future months. The Bible says you must pray. Matthew 6, Philippians 4 6, and other places. So we pray in the worship of God. The Bible says the word must be preached. 2 Timothy 4 2, Romans 10:15. So we preach as I am preaching now. The Bible says the word is to be read, such as in Nehemiah 8, verse 8. So we read the word. The Bible says to sing the Psalms. Colossians 3:16, Ephesians 5:19, James 5:13, and even in our text, 1 Corinthians 14:26. So we sing the Psalms. The Bible says to observe the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Matthew 28, 19, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three 23 to 29. So we observe those two sacraments. All those are the ordinary elements of worship that I just ran through. Well, we do regularly. There are a couple of other occasional elements such as public odes and vows, like when we did our membership for our, uh, our most recent family, um, But uh, we'll get into those as well later in our series. Those are more occasional. They're done on special occasions and are not part of the regular worship of God. Now, one thing that helps define the elements, not only do they come out of the word, but they are distinct from one another. Easily distinguishable, right? Um, (laughs) uh, This is maybe for us as elders and students. In some churches, the reading of the word can turn into the preaching of the word. Right? So that there are now three sermons instead of one. But that would go against how you treat the reading of the word. Uh, we give the sense of the word, as Nehemiah did, if we need to, to exposit it, but we don't turn it into preaching. Right? Uh, so we have to be, as elders, mindful to distinguish the parts of the service we lead. Nor think about this. During the preaching of the word, we don't spontaneously erupt into praise, do we? Right, Because the elements are distinguishable. And the people of God have to be able to recognize the distinction between the elements. Neither do we pass the Lord's Supper around while we're praying or while I'm preaching. Right, That leads to confusion. It leads to chaos. Every element of the service is distinct. Easily, our children, our boys and girls should be able to tell what we're doing at every part of the service. And that they are distinct. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And so while we look... Now, this is something that we will explore in more detail over time, but it's important to establish for the elements of worship. When we look to the Word of God, we look to the entire Word of God for the elements of worship, but we have to understand how the gospel has changed worship. In the Old Testament, you have an animal sacrifice and you have a temple system... And in the New Testament, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ has abolished them. right? And so we have to understand the Bible. We have to understand the theology of redemption. Think of Hebrews 10, verse 10 through 12. Otherwise, we will make the error of the Roman Catholics. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. We have to be careful, friends, to look for elements of worship that endure today. We don't circumcise. We don't keep the Old Testament feasts. We do not offer animal sacrifices, and a bit controversial today, but not to the church fathers or early Presbyterians. We don't offer instruments as part of public worship. They're all connected to the temple. We'll get to instruments a bit later in another sermon. But we must have a robust theology of the gospel to have a robust theology of worship. And so we see that the elements of worship are defined as well by the gospel. And that's why our series is called Gospel Worship, as it is uh, also the title of Jeremiah Burroughs' book by the same title, Gospel Worship, a wonderful little work. We worship, friends, and and we have to be clear, we worship in view of the gospel of the Lord, or else we reintroduce the glory veil that was done away with when Christ died. Types and shadows are gone. And what too many churches do is they try to sew back together the Old Testament veil that was torn asunder. No, we have known Christ gloriously by the gospel, and our worship reflects that. We come by the blood of his cross into the most holy place. And every element offered to him in the most holy place now reflects his finished work. And so, as we consider the elements of worship, I, I, want, I want to talk about church power again. I had a conversation with a brother who comes from a, a very different tradition from Presbyterianism uh, this, uh, during the lunch hour. And, and we wanted to talk about the limits of church power. Something that's not so well defined in his, in his background. But when the elders consider the elements of worship, they have to do it with fear and trembling. Because any element not authorized by God is strange fire. And we remember in Leviticus 10 what happened to those church officers. I have touched on this topic before, but I'll impress on it today. The elders of this church or any other church are given ministerial authority only. That's it. We cannot put into worship anything God has not commanded, that God has not authorized. That is not our place. That is actually, friends, satanic I'll say that right now. It subverts the rule of Christ. You heard that in our sermon, uh, our last sermon, and we considered Mark 7 when Jesus quoted Isaiah and said, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit, in vain do they worship me, teaching what? For doctrines, the commandments of men. You must never forget that Jesus says, This is our Savior, says that we can worship him in vain. When our hearts are far from him as Cain's was, and we seek the doctrines and commandments of men instead of the doctrines and commandments of God, we have to understand, friends, that the doctrines and commandments of men are the same exact thing as strange fire. I do not want to be guilty of leading you, beloved congregation, into worship in vain and worse, offering strange fire to the Lord. And it should be your desire not to be a part of that either. What an awful thing it would be for a minister to do that. And all ministers must tremble at the thought that they may lead their people into offering strange fire that God does not desire. And let me remind you again, because this is a limit on my power and the power of every church elder. Let me remind you again that this principle is hated by too many that God intends to protect by it. The doctrines of commandments and commandments of men violate and bind the consciences of worshipers. They're not liberty, friends. It's interesting, just like the people in the Exodus, they cried out to go back to bondage in Egypt when God had liberated them. In the same way, you are liberated from the doctrines and commandments of men by our Lord Jesus. And you scream, liberty, I want to do whatever I want. But at the end of the day, you don't realize it's the church elders Are binding people by putting before them what God has not commanded. And they put the people in bondage. But let me remind you of the principle of liberty of conscience in Acts chapter four. Peter and John tell us whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. That applies to worship, friends. That applies to worship in every other place where the Word of God speaks. Our conscience is bound to the word of God. And that's where it must be bound. Chaos and bondage arise in worship when elders put into worship what they want and when they do not listen to God and his word. For a bit of history, the Protestant Reformation, people sometimes don't realize this, took place in two phases. The first phase was the rediscovery of the gospel, asking how can I be justified in God's sight? And the five solas answer that question, don't they? But the second phase was a question of power. Who rules in church and state? Calvin, the Dutch, and the Scots reformers all helped answer this. And when it pertains to worship, Jesus Christ alone is Lord of the conscience, Jesus Christ alone is Lord of the church. Jesus Christ alone is Lord even of the civil realm, though they have separate officers. God, through Jesus, defines the elements of worship, and the church has no power there. The church has no power there, has no business with it. All we can do, it's just like the church trying to say, we will write scripture. We have no power to do it. This is the folly of the Roman Catholic Church, to think the church has the power to declare the scripture. God has the right. And we merely minister, recognizing the word of God, and we recognize the elements of worship, but they are all his, and they are his to define. And it is the heirs of the Protestant Reformation who have forgotten this. I don't blame the Lutherans. They were part of the first phase. But the Reformed, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, we should all remember these lessons. We've forgotten. We no longer ask, why do we do anything in worship? It's as though, and I praise God for this in a certain way, we're still running on the vapors of tradition from the Second Reformation. But we do it without remembering the principles of Reformation. So that even the most conservative churches now are adding elements because they forgot why they do anything in worship. People of God, let's put up a stone of remembrance to remember this doctrine. And boys and girls, this is why I preach on this, so that you may pass it on yourself to the next generation. So that we won't forget what things God has done in our midst. Why we as a church have suffered so greatly under the papacy and what we learned from that. And boys and girls, I will have failed utterly in my job if you go and tell your friends that we worship the way we do because it's our tradition. Instead of saying, however imperfect we may be, beloved, that we do everything because the word of God says so. Thus saith the Lord. So the rest of the series will focus on the elements of worship And we'll revisit those principles then. But for the remainder of the time, I want to speak of circumstances and to know the distinction between elements and circumstances. And to know that terminology so it becomes our our lingua franca, so to speak, so that later in the series I may use that terminology and you'll be well aware of what it means. So we're going to consider our last heading now, which is the need to define the circumstances of worship. All right. So the elements come straight out of the word of God. But God has not dictated, you will not find in the Bible, how a service is to be ordered. You're not going to find what time the service begins. We're not like the Mohammedans who have fixed and prescribed times of worship. And that and those considerations are what the Reformed theologians have called circumstances of worship. They're what surround the worship of God and enables it to be done by the apostolic rule, which is let all things be done decently and in order. The all things for worship that have to be done decently and in order are the elements of worship. The circumstances enable them to be done decently and in order. And that is the guiding principle for circumstances of worship. They have no religious significance in themselves but they enable the elements of worship to be handled in an orderly way. And the very best definition of a circumstance is found in your confession. Uh, I won't have to create my own so, because it does it so well. It's from chapter 1, under the word of God, paragraph 6. I've underlined the, the phrase on your bulletin that's important. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, does not nature itself teach you these things, right? About the length of a man's hair. And Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. All right, I'm going I'm to not exegete that for you, but I'm going to take some of the principles for you and explain them. The church, I hope you agree, is a human society. It's made of human beings. Uh, We don't bring animals into our worship service, neither for sacrifice or to have them as part of our audience. This is a human society that gathers together. And what the Bible says is that all things must be done decently in order. And so we see that every society on earth, because we are made in the image of God, has rules that are proper to itself for any assembly of any society. Uh, they are proper to the society itself. For instance, in some areas of this world, you would not be sitting for the sermon and you'd be standing for the sermon. Does that change the element of preaching? It does not. That's a circumstance of preaching. Because they don't have pews, they don't have seats. And some of our brethren stand for two hours or more. If you come from a part of the, country, uh, the world like that, you know that. Or maybe they sit on the floor. That's a circumstance of worship for that society. They still offer the same elements, though their circumstances differ. As a sidebar, the fact that there is a distinction here is part of the genius of the gospel of God. Because that means the gospel and gospel worship can be transported to every culture. You know, you, you think of the Mohammedans. They, it's like they fix their worship to 7th century Arabia. Right? Right? It's as though all the forms, all the circumstances have to cohere to what Muhammad said in his day and age. But the beauty of the gospel is it can be transplanted any place in any society because it is intended for every nation, tribe, and tongue. I praise God for that, and I've heard that you praise God as well in this assembly. And so in view of that, let's consider a circumstance. Our elders chose 10.30 a.m. to be the time of our morning worship, right? Why? Well, God's word does not regulate the time. But we know that many of you, some of you drive over an hour to be here in the mornings. And that seems to be a prudent time for morning worship. God has left that to the elders to determine by asking God for wisdom. Wisdom. And in that, circumstances still are not willy-nilly. They have to be done in a prudent and wise way. If we called you to worship at 2 o'clock a.m., that would violate the very principle of circumstances. They're ordered according to what is common to a society, so worship may be done decently and in order, not saying, are ye mad, but instead declaring that God is the author of peace. Peace. And so when it comes to the actual order of the service, God has left that to the elders to determine as well. Boys and girls, that's why it's called, as I said, an order of worship that you follow. Now you know why it's called that. Because we do everything decently and in order. You know, so in in some of the churches in our denomination, some sing five songs in the worship of God. Some sing three, like us. Some have a sermon after the prayer of intercession, like we do. Some have, uh, we were at Providence in, um, in Pittsburgh, uh, Colin and I, and we would do the prayer of intercession after the sermon. Okay? These are all circumstances of worship. Some have 30-minute sermons. Some have hour-long sermons. Some meet in buildings. Some meet in fields. The regulative principle does not concern itself with those matters. They are circumstances of worship. The elders, God's under-shepherds, are to consider you and the society you live in when they arrange the order of service, its time, and its place. There are other things that are connected to the circumstances of worship. I use a microphone to amplify my voice. That's a circumstance of worship. It aids to the preaching of the word, but it is not part of the preaching of the word. I use a pulpit to put my notes and my Bible on. That is a circumstance. It aids in the worship of God, especially in the preaching, but it is not part of the worship of God. I often preach in, in that vein. When I went to Houston, I preached without amplification. Yes, it's more of a strain on my voice, but I will do it. And, and when we passed the bread, we used a platter because it's common to our society. But the platter itself is a circumstance. The cup may be a separate issue. We'll address another time. But the platter is a circumstance. We don't need it. But I don't think that we pass around bread with our bare hands in our society. And so the elders have chosen to use a platter. It's immaterial whether you use a platter or a basket. It's a circumstance. Circumstances are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence Conducted according to the general rules of the Word of God, as our confession says. For instance, yes, the microphone is a circumstance, but it should not hurt your ears. And if it does, let us know. Because love thy neighbor as thyself should certainly guide my use of the microphone, right? The goal of circumstances is really this basic it's that all things would be done decently and in order. But the problem comes when sinful man wants to take a circumstance and subtly twist it to become an element of worship. And some people introduce strange fire by taking a circumstance and making it effectively an element. So fundamentally, what you need to understand is that a circumstance can have no religious significance. None. It can have no religious significance. They are not distinctive to the church. This is an important part of the definition. They are not distinctive to the church. So, for instance, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. That is not common to human societies, is it? That's distinctive to the church. The preaching of the word of God, that is only for the church. The corporate prayers in Jesus' name, that is for the church. The circumstances are those things that are common to human societies, which is why when I went to Houston, their meeting room in a hotel lobby has a pulpit. (laughs) It's a lectern. That's all it is. It has no religious significance. Now you start calling it the ark or you start calling it something that has religious significance and now you are slowly, slowly turning it from a circumstance to something else entirely. For instance, if the power goes out Lights go out, and you discover in the back closet there, there are a bunch of candles. We may light some candles so that you may be able to worship by opening your Bible and singing from your psalm book. But if you start to light candles religiously in a service, for instance, an Advent candle, and you start to ascribe a religious action to the lighting of the candle, it is no circumstance. It is an element, and it literally, in the case of a candle, has become strange fire because now you have to go and find it in the word of God. And you won't find it, and it has no longer a circumstance of worship, and God will be offended because you're ascribing religious significance to the lighting of a candle as an offering of worship. And there's also another way you can help define a circumstance in the negative is that circumstances cannot offend or wound the conscience. They are just there to keep things done decently and in order, things common to societies. When they become religious, that's when they begin to wound the conscience. And worshipers have a right to say to the elders, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge you make me come up here and light a candle in service, and I will plead, as the apostles did, liberty of conscience, and I have no right, uh, you have no right to make me do it. And I am well in my rights by God to stay away from it. So be aware of the subtlety of sin and worship, friends. Circumstances, yes, enable you to do all things decently in order, but they must never become elements. They must never have religious significance. You can take away my microphone. I might be a little bit sad because of my voice. You can take away my pulpit. You can take away this meeting hall. Let us sing five psalms instead of three. Let me preach 30 minutes instead of an hour. God is okay with that, friends. There are circumstances. What we offer to him are these elements bound together and supported by circumstances. As an aside, here's another way subtlety comes into our our minds and our thoughts. I just mentioned this is our meeting hall, and may God take it away if he must. This is our meeting hall or something like it, our assembly room. It's not a sanctuary. You see, to call it a sanctuary is to start to ascribe religious significance to it, as though this place is holy. It's our meeting hall, our assembly room, a circumstance of worship. We meet in it due to Christian prudence, but we, we know this from our history, we can worship God in the fields. Right? Yet so many have such an attachment, even a religious attachment to their building, thinking it's a more holy place. Though so Jesus, in, in John chapter 4, has banished that thought forever, or he should, in our hearts, have banished that thought forever. Here we are ascribing religious significance to buildings, I mention all this to show you that idolatry in worship is very subtle, beloved. Very subtle. And so there is this distinction between circumstances and elements. And I'm getting near the end of my time, and I'm going to reserve some of this for, for later on in the series. But I just want to, to, to tell you this, if you've never thought about this before, that the Reformers, armed with their Bible, spent a lot of time studying worship. They really did. And we summarized a lot today. And I hope that this distinction between elements and circumstances is helpful because such distinctions help us worship God decently and in order and keep us from offering strange fire to the Lord. And they keep the church from wounding the conscience. These distinctions are vital, friends, because, and we must know them because we do nothing on implicit faith in men. And if you've never thought, why is the worship of God ordered in such and such a way in my church, in this church, or any other church, please ask the elders how they get to it from the word of God. We can't worship God with implicit faith. Instead, we seek to do all things by the light of the word and faith in Jesus Christ. We do it. We think about this. The glory of God is at stake in this chapter, right, friends? So that those who come here would say, God is in you in a truth, and not that ye are all mad. Most of the burden on 1 Corinthians 14.40 is on the elders, yes, but I want to encourage you and exhort you, make sure you yourself don't take away from the orderliness of worship. For instance, these are just some basic examples. Don't talk to your neighbors in worship and distract them taking away from the order. If your children are crying, you want to take them out after a short period of time so that it does not appear that it is chaos here. And you know, of course, that we want your children here in worship. I'm just saying, think about order in worship and bring them back in as soon as possible. Do not get up and use the kitchen, right, or the bathroom unless it's an emergency. Go back to my first sermon. This is the holy worship of God. The presence of God is connected to order in it. Yes, this is mostly on the church elders, but we all contribute to an orderly service. So may you seek to worship the Lord in an orderly way so all here who come in our midst would say, God is in us in a truth. That is our great desire because we don't even necessarily have that desire for others, but we ourselves want to experience the power of God by his spirit knowing that he is in us in a truth, and as he is a God of order, not the author of confusion, the only way that that happens, well, certainly one major way, is when there is order to the worship of God. Have no greater desire than the presence of God among us. Amen? Amen. Please rise for prayer. Our Father our God we thank you for the clarity of the word of God and we thank you for that tension where the Bible itself is clear on where it must be clear and has given us uh, the ability to adapt the gospel in non-religious ways to every society on earth so that we will find in glory that people of every nation tribe and tongue are singing your praises because you have been worshipped among them through different circumstances, yes, but with the very same elements. The Word of God, which is able to powerfully convert sinners. Through the Lord's Sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is able to draw them near and feed them on Christ, on prayers that are offered up to the Lord of hosts. We're able to save them from their persecutors, and so on in the Word of God. We thank you, Lord, that you, our God, have given us such clear direction that you love order. Help us be a people who are not about confusion, but of peace. That your presence would ever burn brightly in our congregation, and we desire more of it. So bring more order where there is none today, and help us to make sure that we do all things according to thy word. For thy word, as we heard this morning, is truth. We thank you and bless you for this word from 1 Corinthians 14. In Jesus' name, amen.